Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosehart Show, live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Just a couple of minutes late here getting things set up. So thank you everyone for, for joining in. I'll give everyone a few seconds to, to get the notification or whatnot. But yeah, it's been another Wednesday. It's been another seven days since my last stream, two years now. Every single week we, we go live. So here we are. Hopefully it's working. I think my internet is working. Um, someone let me know if it is working. Uh, jump in the comments and, uh, and let me know. But um, what have I been up to for the last week? I've been taking out a couple of deals. I've uh, jumped into um, retirement again. So I've been enjoying time with family. I've just like crushing my taxes and uh, spending time with family and the mentees. So thankful for the opportunity to kind of be in quarantine. I've not been aggressively growing uh, at all. I took down a few property deals, but other than that, I've just been, um, just been chilling. So the last week, not much to report as far as um, updates. We talked last week about the real estate, I guess, world and, and everything, how it's changing. Um, but yeah, progress update, not too much on my side. I'm hoping this week, given I don't have a ton of content to share as far as like pre-planned content, like I did maybe last week, I talked a lot about, you know, the market crash. And that was a good, a good segue on the four, I guess, indicators of how you would determine if there's going to be a crash and what you'd look for in a real estate market, you know, over the, um, you know, over the, the course of, you know, the next year or two, let's call it the next 18 months. So that's something to, to think about. And I, I think the, the moral of the story was if you're buying cash flowing real estate, it doesn't matter. Uh, all that does matter is that you've built a bit of liquidity up and you're prepared if, you know, things do get worse that you can always double down. So let's make this a live Q and A. I'll just, I'll just go off whatever you guys say. And if we finish early, then I'll go chill with the family and watch a show. Ellie, how you doing? Good to see you on. William, great to see you on as well. Anthony, good to see you on. Rob, great to see you on too. And Zev, awesome to see you on. Uh, Jim says, hey Mike, can you donate 20 bands? No, um, well, depends, but probably not, no. <laughs> Wondering if you have to find a buyer in a certain time frame when wholesaling a property. Zev, so I guess the answer to your question is, how do you wholesale? Because um, it sounds like you don't really understand the process. So the idea behind a wholesale or um, it's really just an assignment of contract is you go and you find a property that's, you can actually do this with on-market properties if you're not a realtor. Um, you could just go lock a property up under contract, which means you put in an agreement to purchase and a sale, you lock it up on, with a condition to escape or not, up to you, but you put a property under contract, which means you have the right to buy the property and they can't sell it to anyone else. It's under contract to you. Once the property's under contract to you, you've agreed on a purchase price, you've put in your conditions that you're okay with, your closing date, et cetera. If you put it in a clause within the offer called an assignment clause, and you write that in, hey, I have the right to transfer the property to any corporation or person that I would see fit and like to transfer it to without your permission. So basically you have the right to buy this property for X price. Say you offer on a property on realtor.ca, on a uh, MLS for $200,000. So you'd buy that property for $200,000, you lock it up, they agree to close on it in 90 days. Now you have this property and maybe you can escape with a financing clause or a partner approval condition, or maybe you can't, but you have a clause in there that says you have the right to assign this property. That's what the idea of wholesaling is. You go lock a property up that you think is desirable, that you think is worth more than what you're paying for it. So you lock it up for 200 and by all you know analysis measures, you determine the property's worth 220. So you approach an investor and you say, hey, I've got this property in this market, it's $200,000 under contract. Do you want the right to buy this property at $200,000? Do you want me to assign the contract to you for say $5,000? So you'll be all in for 205,000, but this property is worth 225, let's say. 
So there's a $20,000 upside for the investor. They're happy. They're good, they get to have a property for a $20,000 discount. You've locked up this contract. You sell them the paper. You sell them the purchase contract for an assignment fee. That is the idea of wholesaling. You, most people talk about it privately, but you can do it with MLS too. You can go on MLS and just throw in a ton of offers and lock something up. Once you get something locked up, you assign that to an investor and they, they buy the property. Um, and you get paid a fee for locking the property under contract. I've done some of this. It's a great way to make money. Oftentimes, instead of a wholesale fee, you can get a partnership cut. You can say, hey, I've got this property worth 250,000. I've got it under contract for 200. Do you want a piece of that? The investor's like, yeah, I would love a piece of that. It cash flows great. Thank you for sending me that analysis. Thank you for doing the legwork and getting the deal. Um, I would happily cut you in for 10 or 20% of profit or 30% of profit or whatever. Uh, or they can just give you a flat fee. It's kind of up to you. Do you want a flat fee or do you want to be part of the deal and sharing the profit? Having the property under contract gives you the control to do that. That is, you put in all the work, you get the property under market value, you've brought the value um, to the table. So that's what assigning is. And I guess the overall question was, you said, how do you find a buyer uh, within a certain time frame, or do you have to find a buyer? So yes, you would essentially have say a 60 day closing period or a 30 day closing period on this contract. Typically between 30 and 60 is standard, but I've seen people sign contracts for 120 day closing, 150 day closing. You can go really long as long as you get the seller to agree to it. Uh, so if they agree and everyone's you know good, you get it in writing and you're good to go. But uh, yes, you have to assign this contract before your conditional period runs out if you want to back out of the deal. Now, if you're firm on the deal, you can always have the right to um, you can always have the right to you know close on yourself. You could close out with a partner. There's lots of other options. You don't have to assign it uh, per se. But if you go firm, which means no conditions of financing or inspection, that's more attractive to the seller. That's how I typically do all my offers. Now, I plan to close every property I buy, so I don't really wholesale. But sometimes I'll buy too many properties and I'll need to assign them to an investor because I can't close five at once. Um, that would be a, a time where you might want to assign the contract. Some people make a business of just assigning contracts. That's all they do. That's called wholesaling. It's the idea that you buy properties, typically off market, but sometimes on market, and you basically assign a bunch of contracts for fees. You're a wholesaler. Um, it's like a realtor, but not licensed. So they don't have any regulated, regulatory requirements. I'm a realtor, so I can't be a wholesaler, but wholesalers tend to, and it's crazy because people think a wholesale deal as an investor, they think that they're getting an off market wholesale deal that's a better deal. Not necessarily. I've seen wholesale deals that are worse than what you can find on MLS or realtor.ca. So just be careful on uh, both sides of it. But the short answer to your question is, yes, you need to find someone to buy the contract before it expires. So if, you're, if you bought a property right now, you locked up under contract and it was closing you know, 60 days from now, Within like 30 days, like we're well, gonna have a certain amount of period for conditions, let's say two weeks of conditions. You have to, if you're not able to close on it yourself, you have like a one or two week window to get this property assigned. So if you can't find a buyer for that contract and you don't plan to actually close on it, you're screwed. Uh, Cause I mean, you'd have to firm up after that point or let the contract expire. Those are your two choices. Um, and if you've already firmed up, they'll sue you if you don't close. So you have to be careful if you're gonna lock a contract up, one, they're gonna keep your deposit, but two, they're gonna probably sue you if you don't close. So make sure when you're assigning contracts, and be careful guys, a lot of people assign contracts thinking that the blame or the liability is off them. If you assign a contract to an investor and they don't end up closing three months from now, the seller's gonna come back on you and probably sue you. So wholesalers take a whole lot of risk and just remember that. I think everyone uh, sort of thinks wholesaling is this great thing. It's like being a realtor, um, you tend to make a little bit less than a realtor on average because you do less volume um, typically. It's harder than being a realtor. 
It's quasi-legal sometimes. Uh, it's totally legal, but a lot of wholesalers go into the gray and they make mistakes that they shouldn't that put them at risk. Um, but being a wholesaler is like a $60,000, $70,000 a year job. If you're really good and you build a good wholesaling business and you have like seven or eight guys underneath of you, you could make well into the six figures as a wholesaler, but you could do the same thing as a realtor. So it's, I, I don't know. I never saw the allure of, of being a wholesaler. Uh, that's why I never did it. That's why I don't recommend people go ahead and just become a full-time wholesaler. I think there are better ways to make more money and being a realtor, to be honest, gives you uh, more ability to do that. But the idea is with a wholesaler, you have this contract and you're selling it and you're getting paid by the buyer. Typically a realtor gets paid by the seller. So that's the difference basically between a wholesaler and a realtor um, is that a wholesaler can charge whatever they want. A realtor has prescribed fees they have to stay within that are reasonable. Um, a wholesaler, for instance, could, I've seen contracts where they, you know, dupe this person into selling their house for hundred grand. It's worth 300 and they sell the contract for 200. So they make a hundred thousand dollar fee on this, on this hundred thousand dollar property. They're literally making a hundred thousand dollars in, uh, like an assignment fee and that's like pretty dirty um it's like quasi moral i guess because they've taken this person to the cleaners for a hundred thousand dollar discount i mean i guess they must have been a good negotiator so they deserve something for locking that up and as an investor i'd be happy to pay the hundred thousand dollar wholesale fee for a hundred thousand dollar house so i'm two hundred thousand dollars in on a three hundred thousand dollar property that would be a great deal for me so i would you know i'd be happy to do that but those deals don't exist very often um, they're very very hard and most wholesalers make five ten thousand dollars per deal and most wholesalers, if they spend a lot of money on marketing, typically have like a 70% profit margin, typically, and their overall sales volume isn't that big. It's hard to lock up more than say a deal, a good deal a month. Um, I, for a long time, was doing that. I was running the marketing and all that. As one person, it's very hard to do the kind of volume you need to, to make wholesaling as profitable as real estate investing. And it's not passive at all. It's like a full-time job. Um, it is a full-time job. You're working, you're employed effectively as, self-employed, I guess. If you're partnered up with someone, then you'd be employed, I guess, for them doing wholesaling. Um, that's how, you know, a lot of guys position it as this like financial independence thing, but it's really just a commissioned sales job. Um, that's what wholesaling is. There's your two cents on wholesaling. And just cause you can find properties under market value doesn't necessarily mean you can find a buyer for them. Uh, and cause you have to find the investor who actually wants them. Even if it's a good deal, a lot of people don't trust what a good deal is. They don't understand the comps. They don't understand, you know, when they're looking at a good deal in the face, Trust me, I've sent people deals that I couldn't close sometimes that were $100,000 under market value. I'm like, this deal is a slam dunk. Like I would literally close on it if I didn't have three other deals I was closing on. And I have investors getting back to me who had lots of money being like, nope, not about this property. I don't believe in its value. And like, I would send the messages back six months later and be like, this is what it sold for. And you were totally wrong. And they're like, oh. <laughs> so I don't know, that was just me like rubbing it in. The fact that the point is, wholesaling is not as sexy as people make it sound. So that's the, uh, brutally honest answer to wholesaling. And yes, it is difficult to find a buyer. And that's why partnering up with someone who has a big network of investors can make the difference. William says, let's get to William's question. Um, my question tonight is how do you go from 10,000 a month where I think I'll be at this fall to $30,000 a month? And I have 59 K of total leverage right now. William, it's tough to answer that question without a lot more, um, variables, there's just so many variables at play there, right? It sounds like you don't have a lot of leverage. $59,000 in leverage right now isn't a lot. You're making $10,000 a month in cash flow. I don't know what your net worth is. I don't know what kind of assets you're playing with, if you have the ability to qualify for debt. Um, but if you do, and you only have $59,000 in debt right now, and you're making like 10,000 a month, you could easily lever up and get more debt because $59,000 in debt is not a lot of money in the real estate world, right? We often 
if you have a few million dollars in real estate, let's say, let's say $30,000 a month, $30,000 a month in net cash flow is probably a portfolio size of like around 6 million. If they're really good cash flowing properties, if you had a $6 million real estate portfolio, um, that would probably give you 30,000 a month. Like this is a pretty sexy $6 million real estate portfolio, but I'm basing off my numbers in London off some properties I have, and this is just like making some crazy assumptions here, but on a $6 million portfolio, let's say you put 20% down. Uh, that's pretty standard when you're buying properties. So 20% down means you need on, um, say, a, let's just go 5 million for easy math, right? It means you need a million bucks down payments. So you need to raise a million dollars in capital or you need to have a million dollars in capital. And then you need to use the bank's money for the other 80% the, in mortgages. And you need to borrow the other $4 million in mortgages to have a $5 million real estate portfolio. That would be basically how you do it. If you have that kind of money, you could put it to better work and build a nice real estate portfolio pretty easily. If you don't, you gotta find people to raise the money privately or you gotta find joint venture partners and have them bring the financing or have them bring the down payments and not say build and maybe you share 50-50 in the profit. In which case, if you're JVing, you probably need like a $12 million real estate portfolio to generate that kind of cash flow. Um, which sounds like a lot, but trust me, like last year we acquired, geez, like $15 million in real estate, mostly through joint venture partnerships. And in acquiring all that real estate, I was surprised how quickly it adds up, right? You close a $400,000 house, then a $500,000 house, then a $300,000 house, then a $600,000, you know, triplex, whatever. And before you know it, like, you know, 20, 30 properties later, you're like, wow, I have a, you know, eight figure real estate portfolio. Now that's not net, that's gross. That's like the gross asset value. But the cool thing about having a portfolio of that size in real estate is that if it appreciates, say 3% um, on $10 million, right? What's the math on that? 3% is like $300,000 in appreciation. So even a 3% jump in appreciation gives you $300,000 upside. Now, if your down payment is say 20% of that, you get $2 million in capital on a $10 million portfolio, and you just had a $300,000 appreciation jump, that's a good amount of um, gains. So yes, we invest for cash flow, but appreciation is a nice bonus in building up that portfolio. Myself personally, um, I am keeping a lot of properties today that I don't even need just for the appreciation upside play. Like I could probably, some of my portfolio, I look at, look at some of my properties and I'm like, Geez, I could just do private lending, secured private lending at 15% return in a first mortgage and get the same sort of cash flow on my equity in this property. Let's say I have 150,000 equity in a property. It could generate for me, you know, like 2000, over $2,000 a month in passive income pretty conservatively, right? And I wasn't getting $2,000 a month net income on, on the property right? or in cash flow. So I'm like, geez, what's the, like, I actually have more cash flow doing private lending than I could just keep in this property. So I should maybe sell the property and do private lending. But then when you factor in appreciation, then it sort of goes out the window, right? Because your levered appreciation gives you a way better return. So William, the answer is, um, it depends on your investing strategies. It depends if you wanna do private lending, or you wanna do it through real estate investing. The thing with real estate investing is you can use leverage, you can use other people's money, you can use the bank's money primarily, um, at a cheap cost of debt to grow and have a lot of cash flow. So that's why I like real estate. But again, it's a business. I'm, I'm acting asking you basically to take on, like to manage a portfolio of that size and have that kind of cash flow, you've got a full-time job just managing all of that. So that's, um, it'll make you self-employed. If you wanna be really passive, then private lending is the way to go, or budget out of your 30,000, say, hey, I'm okay having 20,000 a month and give $10,000 a month to a really good management company to take care of everything. And so that's something you gotta kind of think about and and uh, play on it, right, and see where, See where it makes sense for your for your portfolio, William. But great question. I love the uh, I love the planning there. I love the the thought behind how to get from you know ten to thirty thousand. And I need more context again. Like I see you on every Wednesday, so I have a pretty good idea.
But um, yeah, it's just good to see you on and uh, hope I can help. If you ask more targeted questions, I could give you strategies on how you could build your portfolio to get there. Parappa says, hey Mike, does it make sense to contribute to RRSP if you plan to grow a large real estate portfolio? Yes. Um, yes, so for those who don't know what an RRSP is, it's a registered retirement savings plan. Here in Canada, it's like the 401k effectively. Um, yes, it makes sense because there are specific tax advantages. You get the right to defer 18% of your income each and every year and it's cumulative. So if you didn't do it in previous years, you can take advantage of it now. 18% um, of all income you've ever earned, you can throw into an RRSP and that you get a tax credit back on that. So it's as if that 18% of your income was never taxed. So if you made hundred grand, you can put 18,000 into that um, RRSP each and every year that you made that hundred grand. You could do it all at once or you could do it each and every year. And that money sits in there and gets to grow tax-free until you withdraw it. And when you withdraw it, which anytime you want, there's no age limit on the RRSP. Contrary to popular belief, you can withdraw from it whenever you want. So if you have a year where you're unemployed, you're like, hey, I'm gonna travel the world, I'm 35, and you just decide to travel the world, you can draw down your RRSP and live on that, and it will just be taxed at your marginal tax bracket. So if your tax bracket was like near zero because you weren't working, you could draw that money out of your RRSP tax-free. So the answer is, should you be using your RRSP? Hell yes. Um, how do you use it to invest in real estate? I'll give you two bonus tips. And this is not like premeditated or thought out, so I'm probably missing something. But one, you can use your RRSP for proof of down payment. Most banks will allow, you don't even have to take the money out of it, you can just show it as your proof of down payment and then borrow the money from your line of credit. But they wanna see that it's your own funds. So that's one, you can use your RRSP for proofs of down payment. Two, you can take the money inside your RRSP and if you don't like the equity market, you can lend within your RRSP. You could call you know, Mike up, call Mike up and say, and Joe says to Mike, hey, I got $100,000 in my RRSP. I don't wanna invest in stocks. It's tax sheltered right now. I don't wanna take it out to lend it to you. How do I lend it to you? There are companies like Olympia Trust and there's a ton of other companies that do it, but third party companies that will take the money and secure it against houses in the form of first or second mortgages. So you can call me up and say, hey Mike, I wanna put a second mortgage on one of your rental properties and I want a 12% fixed return. Cool, all right, you take the $100,000 in your RRSP and you give it to me through a third party company. You're using your RRSP to do private lending. And now your RRSP is growing at 12%. All the interest payments that I'm making are going right into your RRSP and it's growing completely tax-free. So the RRSP is an amazing vehicle. It's like the 401k, but I think it's a little bit more sexy in some ways. Now, I don't know the intricacies of the tax laws between the two countries, between Canada and the United States. I know I have followers in both countries. So for those people following along, um, you should take advantage of your tax vehicles if you can. Just find a way to leverage them and use them for real estate investing if that's your target. Um, I guess a third juicy tip for you if you're just getting started in your real estate investing journey is you can borrow from your RRSP the first time that you buy your, uh, your first property. So first time home buyers, you can borrow from it and then pay back into it. So that's another um, pro tip. Or if you're going back to post-secondary school for a master's or a PhD, you can borrow from your RRSP as well. So the funds aren't necessarily locked up and you can always pull them out whenever you want. You just have to pay tax on that income. So if last year you put you know, $20,000 in your RRSP and you're like, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. You could always just take it out this year and pay the tax you would have paid on that money. Um, it's your choice. But of course it is a tax deferral vehicle and it is awesome and you should leverage it as a real estate investor. Your tax-free savings account and your RRSP are amazing ways to defer tax and you can use them to invest in real estate. You could use, you could fund a JV deal potentially at an arms, if it's an arm's length relationship because you can't do it with family. But with arm's length relationships, you can use your RRSP and TFSA to lend 
mortgages on deals. So you could technically fund deals and JV with someone using money in your RRSP and TFSA. Now don't quote me on that. You have to talk to a you know a tax and a tax professional accountant and a lawyer about how you'd structure that, but I know it has been done. So figure out how to structure it for yourself, but it can be done. There are lots of options with the RRSP. Okay. I'm gonna go back up here and hit some more questions. Let's do it. Hey, Brian. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Michael. Hey, Seema. Brian says, should we hold students accountable to lease knowing they won't live there and will be at home doing online courses? So Brian's referring to how during COVID-19, the colleges and universities have pretty much gone completely online. And there's been like a complete shutdown of the on-campus aspects. And so towns like mine that have you know, geez, almost 100,000 students, including full and part-time students. Um, what, about, what about all those students that sign one-year leases that aren't there now? Um, are they legally bound by their lease? Yes, they're legally bound by their lease. They have to pay the rent. They can't just walk away. That said, if you're a reasonable landlord, you'll probably work with them. Be like, hey, um, you're not going to be here. Do you want to sublet your room to someone else? I'd be happy to work with you to approve that sublet. And so you might offer them that option. Uh, it's up to the landlord to approve the sublet, but if they found a suitable sublet tenant, you might allow them to sublet their lease so someone else could cover their lease. Maybe even sublet it for you know the same price and they could hopefully get out for nothing. Um, another option is if they're not there and they don't want to sublet and their stuff's all there and they don't want to move it out, you could say, hey, I know no one's going to be here. I'll give you a discount since there's no wear and tear, there's no utility usage. You could offer something like that and that's up to the landlord's discretion, but the beautiful thing about a le signed lease is that the landlord has the power in this relationship. So. It's okay um, for those people who are vacant right now who are looking to place tenants, but then COVID happened. I'm sorry, it's a really rough time. I'm here with you. I've got a property right now I'm thinking about that has a similar, pro similar problem. What I'm doing is pivoting. I'm just not renting to students this year. I might go a cycle where I'm not with the students. I might have to put you know, a young professional couple in there instead or uh, a group of young you know, folks who are just graduated school and they're working downtown and they're okay sharing a five bedroom house. So you just have to expand your your horizons and maybe drop your rent a little bit to get it rented, but it'll be okay. We're gonna weather this. And the beautiful thing about real estate is that they're not making any more land. And if you had a property in a favorable area, your property's probably still gonna hold its value. You know, five years from now, it'll be probably worth more than what it is today, statistically speaking. 10 years from now, I'm even more confident of that prediction. Um, and so if you could generate some cash flow during this time and survive, you know, this little recession we're going through, you'd be much better off in the long term. So thanks for the question. Scrolling up to the next question. Parappa says, what are your thoughts on renting to tenants on ODSP in Ontario Works? Um, I have to be careful what I say publicly. I would prefer a tenant that, ha I will say this, I, I would prefer a tenant that is working and is earning an income that is around three times the rent multiple. Um, I would prefer a tenant that has savings and you know is in a position if you're on Ontario Works, you have no assets. That's like a requirement of the program. So you have to be pretty much um, almost no assets and not working. So it doesn't make them a favorable candidate. Oh, of course my dog just snuck in here. He's going for the squirrels again, guys. Jonas is gonna grab him. He doesn't listen anyway. <laughs> you guys wanna see him? Oh, guys. My dog just snuck in here. That's my dog Milo. And that's Jonas, he's one of mentees. He happened to save the dog from coming in. He loves, so we have a, I have a big window here that overlooks my backyard and there's like two other ones that are, um, you can easily see, you know, the whole backyard. And so he gets a good bird's eye view of all the squirrels in our backyard. And so he doesn't know what a live show is. He's like, daddy, I just want to see the squirrels. 
I just want to chase the squirrels, daddy. Next question from Shadow Dragon says, if you're fixing a home to rent out, to what extent should you fix it up to? Um, so I guess goes on to say, fix for top dollar just so it's livable, or I'm guessing the former, but not sure. It depends, and there's no you know set answer here. It depends on the market conditions. It depends on the type of property. It depends on the area of the property. Like if here in, in London, there's some areas that are like C neighborhoods, and it makes sense never to put in you know, quartz countertops and stainless steel appliances because the clientele don't care. A white fridge get, demands the same amount of rent as a stainless steel fridge in that neighborhood. Um, and even if you put the nice finishes in, the tenants tend to, to wear and tear a little harder on the properties. It's just the nature of that area, right? And there's a bit more vandalism and things like that. And the clientele looking to buy that property, if, if you're going for like, depends if you're selling to an investor or like a home buyer, but if you're selling to someone who wants to live in the property, that clientele typically doesn't care as much about those things and you'd be what's called over-renovating. And so sometimes making it nice, they might care about it, but the person buying the C neighborhood can't afford a house that has those level of finishes. And so they can't afford, if you get, if you spend too much money renovating the property, you're going to be in a position where you're at a loss. And so sometimes it makes sense to walk into a property, just paint, and even though the floors might be scratched up a little bit, leave them because the cost to put the new floors in might not be something you get back. Like the fact that the floors are a little bit scraped up, you might be able to just like put a polish on the hardwood and say, okay, um, you know, it's, it's good enough. It's not gonna hurt my purchase price too much. So it just depends, it's so situational. Some properties I walk in and I'm like, it's a, it's a judgment call. Like, hey, is this floor good enough or 